This is the Pro Channel Manager Podcast, episode number 10. You're listening to the Pro Channel Manager Podcast, the only podcast in the world that shows you how to run a YouTube channel just like the pros. And here's your host. He's grown multiple YouTube channels by millions of subscribers and billions of views. And even though he speaks funny, we promise you he is speaking English, Tom Martin. Love that song. That Easter egg always makes me hungry. If you want to find out what that little clip was at the start of this episode, you can find that along with any links mentioned in today's episode, along with a detailed step-by-step guide on today's tips by visiting prochannelmanager.com forward slash episode 10. That's the word episode, the number 10, no spaces, no hyphens. And today we've got an amazing guest. He's a good friend of mine. I feel like I say that for every guest. I suppose I'm very lucky to be very, very well connected to these amazing YouTube minds. And he is, I'd say, probably the world's leading authority on Content ID. If you're listening to this podcast, you should know what Content ID is, especially if you're working on the channel management side. However, I suppose if you are a a big creator, somebody who's focused on creating content, you may not know so much about the mechanics of Content ID. But in short, it's a way you can make a lot of money by allowing users to upload some of your videos or parts of your videos and monetizing that. So today we've got a conversation of two halves as we pretty much have an audience of two halves. The first half is going to be Ryan talking about how creators and pro channel managers can increase their monetization by implementing Content ID. And in the second half, he's going to be speaking more to our pro channel management audience, people that are working in Content ID, running channels, running Content ID, how to run a clean CMS and how to maximize monetization that way. Now, as I say, Ryan is probably the world's leading authority on Content ID. If you want to know more about the journey that he took to start up his company and his experience, we don't really talk about that in this episode. But I did interview him about that for my other podcast, The Video Insiders. So I'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, go and check that out. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Not yet. Listen to this episode first, please. Then go and check out that if you want to learn more about Ryan. This is an incredible episode. No matter what side of content ID you're sitting on, this is an absolute essential listen. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to thank our sponsor, our supporter. This would not be possible without you, vidIQ. Here's a quick word from them. vidIQ is the secret weapon for every professional YouTube channel manager. Why? Because it has all of the amazing workflow and efficiency tools you need to save you time and effort, but there's more. It also has the most advanced YouTube SEO tools in the world, including an incredible keyword research tool that I use on every single video that I upload. I've been using vidIQ since way back in 2013, and without it, I simply would not have been able to generate the billions of YouTube views that I have. Fact. So if you want to get Ninja and start using the tools that the pros use, check out prochannelmanager.com forward slash vidIQ 
to get a free 30-day trial of one of their awesome paid plans. That's ProChannelManager.com forward slash V-I-D-I-Q. And you can thank me later. Thank you, VidIQ. So remember, all of Ryan's tips will be summed up in a step-by-step guide, which you can find at ProChannelManager.com forward slash episode 10. So we're almost about ready to run this amazing interview, but just a quick heads up, Ryan's audio has had quite a bit of trouble. We've had literally the world's best audio experts working on it. That's not an exaggeration. Uh, And it's still not quite perfect. So apologies for that, but it it is worth sticking around for. It's going to be so valuable to listen to it all the way through. Thanks so much for your patience with that. Lesson learned for me in guest audio in the future. But as I say, it's going to be well, well worth it. So here's Ryan. So welcome, Ryan Bossack. You wouldn't have heard that intro, Ryan, but let's say it's safe to say if I blow any more smoke up your ass, you'll start to levitate. So let's get straight into it. Of course, welcome. Uh, please start off by telling us uh, what is SuperBAM, apart from an awesome name, uh, and what services are you providing to creators and, and companies out there today? Yeah, thanks for having me today. So SuperBAM is a standalone rights management provider for content creators and media companies. Essentially, we we provide a lot of the technical backend uh, on the content ID side. And we do that in a unique way that uh, keeps channels independent from us um, and just helps bring them, uh, you know, incremental revenue every single month. So we do, you know, content copyright protection work across uh, the YouTube platform today and the others to come. I'm really interested because there's kind of two sides to the the content ID coin, as I've experienced it throughout the years, working with some big media companies and some smaller ones, and now working with my own stuff that is a copyright minefield, as you well know. There's kind of like the rights protection side, and there's the monetizing user upload side. Both have very, very valid use cases. What percentage of your clientele are there to make money from their user uploads? And which percentage would you say are, are using content ID to, you know, brand protection in the, in the most conservative sense of the word where they're, you know, they're mainly blocking their content from being available on YouTube? Yeah. I mean, so for us, the vast majority uh, of our clients uh, choose to monetize their content. I would call it 98% to 99%. We really only have a couple clients that are interested in, in, in blocking. Look, for most content creators and in smaller media companies, for sure, you know, this is incremental revenue. It's, it's an additional stream of revenue that they can bring to the table each and every month. It's more information and data about a unique audience that they're not getting from their owned and operated. So, you know, you really have those two things combined that just make it a much better strategy overall for them to be monetizing the content than than blocking or taking it down. Uh, one of those two strategies, you know, on the flip side, for, for people who are blocking or taking down, usually those are more traditional media companies. And oftentimes they have a paywall or they have their licensing content that they need to geo-restrict or they may actually have a DVD strategy or another digital distribution strategy like on Netflix or something like that, where they really do need to keep the content off of of freemium platforms, at least in the short term. And I'm going to play devil's advocate here. So I'm a a big media company. I've got 
you know, some TV shows or some movies or some kids' cartoons, whatever it may be. And I'm sure you get the same objections all the time, which are things like, how can I make sure that I'm getting attribution? And how can I make sure that my content is not being mashed up into like crazy pornographic jihadi, <laughs> all of yep. the above type videos? I'm sure you get these questions yeah. uh, from potential clients all the time. Also, you know, another, I think another big objection, not from me personally, because I know better, but uh, would be like, is my content going to be cannibalized? So I'd love to know what your response is to those questions that you no doubt get thrown at you multiple times every day. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, we actually usually end up finding more of that stuff uh, than we get asked about it. Um, but we definitely do get that, right? So, you know, what we do at SuperBAM is pretty bespoke. Um, and so we're actually reviewing all of the content that we're claiming before we claim it. And we'll always talk to our clients about what they want their claiming strategies to be prior to commencing claiming for them. And then, you know, we'll go the additional step that when we find those kinds of things, which we do on a fairly regular basis, I mean, we'll, we'll either go ahead and remove those or, or ask them what their strategy is, if they, if they care about it, if they don't care about it. You know, for example, we had one video come through that paired up one of our younger influencers, making it look like this person was communicating with ISIS. And obviously, that was probably not a video that they wanted to have up or we wanted to go ahead and leave up. So we asked them and went ahead and took that particular video down. But for us, you know, it's it's entirely dependent on the client's strategy and, and what they want to do. And usually we'll just ask them directly. And then on the side of, you know, is this poaching from my channel? You know, we have some pretty direct experience to show that these owned and operated audiences and these UGC or user generated content audiences are really discreet. There definitely are a lot of people who think that if UGC is doing well, that I'm probably not getting as many views on my content because it's being pulled elsewhere. But what we've seen consistently across our clients, some of whom have said, hey, look, we want to just take all this stuff down because our own operated is declining, is that that's just not the case. They'll go ahead and take down all the content. We'll take down all the content and they will see literally zero growth on their actual owned and operated side. So, you know, our recommendation is always, hey, let's let's monetize this unless there's a really good reason, i.e. you do have a paywalled website or something like that um, to go ahead and remove the content uh, and then take advantage of it because it is it is a unique audience and there might be ways that we could actually migrate that audience over. And um, do you have, I, I don't know if this is a service that you do offer or not, but there is the option to have kind of um, campaigns on UGC. So you can drive traffic back from user uploads with those little info cards and they will drive traffic back to your channel or your official video. So I'm, I'm sure that can help in terms of the argument for attribution. But have you ever actually seen any kind of analytical evidence that those campaigns are worth the time they take to implement and to uh, administer? I've seen kind of mixed results previously and more recently. And I think the way that those campaigns appear on videos has probably changed a bit over the years as well. So I'd love to get your opinion on those. Yeah, so I've actually run uh, A-B testing on that. You know, it's a product feature that when it first launched, it was called Programming from Claimed or PFC. It's now just called uh, Campaigns. 
And you know, it's exactly what you said. It's allowing you to drop a link in the UGC video that either leads to a YouTube channel or another YouTube video. And I believe in the case of music, um, you can actually link it to, you know, some sort of web story by the music. Like I said, we run some maybe testing on that where we were literally dropping that link across tens of thousands of videos and, you know, saw a pretty low return rate, like sub 1%. And, you know, even though you're seeing a 1% return rate, I mean, those that are actually not only returning and then converting to, you know, a subscriber or repeat viewer on the channel is is likely pretty low. Um, so it, it's a cool vanity metric to have for sure. And it's one of those things that, you know, why not do it, especially if you can just drop that link across thousands of other videos. But we, we don't see it really providing a ton of actual value or what we would measure as value back to the original um, piece of content. Yeah, I'd agree there from my experience is that it's kind of nice to have. Uh, and it, as you know, if you're trying to kind of call clients into taking on kind of rights management services, I think that it's a really good selling point because you can say to clients, oh, yeah, and we can drive traffic back to your official promo video from all of these user uploads. But whether or not it actually moves the needle for for that said client or not is is probably a different issue. What is probably most important to a lot of your clients is revenues. And that is probably most important to a lot of people salivating over the prospect of switching on this new revenue stream and getting in contact as soon as they stop listening to this. What kind of revenues are we talking about when it comes to monetizing user uploads? Obviously, you can't give specifics. Um, and also it's, you know, it's going to depend by niche and, and whatnot, but. You know, how much of a difference can this make to the average YouTuber of a, of a certain size? Because, you know, I've seen and worked on media properties where the UGC revenue is multiples of the official revenue. I know it can get to a absolutely kind of astronomical scale, but for the average, you know, mid-sized, good-sized creator, what kind of percentage of their, say, owned uh, revenue can they expect to make from uh, user uploads? Yeah, so it you know, really kind of runs the, the arc, um, to be totally honest with you. And, and we've had experiences where clients that came in that we thought were going to be super successful with it really underperformed. And, and then the exact opposite, where we've had clients that we thought were going to be on the low end of things, but then were so far beyond. I mean, one of them was even our top client from a revenue perspective for a little while. So look, for most people, you know, once you get to kind of a certain size and scale, this is probably somewhere between 50 to $1,000 a month of incremental revenue. And, you know, it's one of those things that, I mean, whether you're paying for a, a couple cheeseburgers at McDonald's or, you know, it's actually contributing to your rent or maybe a new piece of equipment or some of the content that you're making, you know, it's never a bad idea to do because the al alternate side of that is you never know when the, that $50 a month is going to go to a couple thousand dollars a month. And we've had plenty of experiences where that has also happened that a client who has performed at a, you know, pretty average level out of the blue has something that gets uploaded and just kind of goes super viral in the UGC world. And all of a sudden they have a few thousand dollars a month of revenue. 
on the alternate side of that, I mean, we have a pretty large group of clients that do, you know, in the thousands of dollars a month, we have some clients that are doing over $10,000 a month. Uh, and we have a couple of clients who've even gone over a hundred thousand dollars a month in incremental revenue. So, wow. you know, it's, it's one of those things that why wouldn't you do it? As long as people aren't hopping in and just taking down all your content or claiming a bunch of stuff that's fair use or whatever. I mean, this is you protecting the work that you've created and exploiting uh, the work that you've created in a way that it should be. Yeah. And I'm really interested to know from your experience, I'm not sure if you have your stats on it, but even if it's anecdotal, what what do these user uploads generally look like? Coming from the media world, you know, it's usually full episode rips, mm-hmm. stuff like yep. that, or full episode rips put into extremely long compilations of episodes. But what does it look like on the kind of creator side? So let's say if I'm a vlogger or like a family channel or like a prank channel, how does that translate into user-generated content? Is it literally they're ripping down the video, they're giving it a new title, a new thumbnail and re-uploading it? Or is it top tens or clip compilations or they're used in like musical mashups? What are you, what are you seeing that, that's... Uh, interesting from a content point of view so yeah i mean look it's all of those things it really depends Uh, i would say most often what we're seeing is is straight ripping and re-uploading just like you see with traditional that's that's the largest amount of volume you'll see a lot of you know the quote-unquote react content that comes along that may or may not fit fair use and certainly we take a look and assess all of those things you do see stuff getting mashed into compilations quite a bit uh, every now and again, somebody's video will get turned into a meme. And so you'll see literally tens of thousands of re-uploads of that. So uh, on that front too, I mean, it's it's really just all over the map. Every once in a while, you know, we will come across something that is actually like really transformative and creative where somebody has taken the original work and turned it into something completely different. You know, and sometimes we'll see people just grab a quick clip here and there and use it as transitional B-roll where, you know, they could have definitely gone and got a piece of licensed content, but they were just like, well, this is free on the internet. So I'm just going to take it, shove it in there. So it really is kind of all over the board as far as how people are using content. I mean, I would say it's, it's pretty similar to how people use a lot of the more traditional type content, whether that's music or, you know, movie or TV show or something like that. It's, it's pretty consistent across the board. Yeah. You bring up some good points there about, you know, people, claiming fair use and stuff like that. I'm not going to get into that world because that's a whole (laughs) legal can of worms. You've probably got, I know you've got strong opinions on it. I've got strong opinions on it. Um, But I do have a kind of related question and that's coming from someone like me that has been both working for the rights holder, you know, someone who's worked for big media companies and, you know, has ruled with an iron fist to somebody now who is getting videos claimed by those media companies on quite a regular basis. And the question is that although the power really stands with the rights holder, is it fair to say that a a claim from a rights holder, be that a big media company or a bedroom independent YouTuber, whatever you want to call it, is it fair to say that the kind of strength of that claim is only as strong as that rights holder's willingness to follow this matter all the way through to like a court case or litigation? Uh, I mean, somewhat, you know, look, I mean, a 
a copyright is a copyright. An infringement on that copyright is an infringement on that copyright. Um, a claim is a claim. I mean, one of my favorite terms that's out there is I got a false claim. It, you know, it's, it's not a false claim. The claim is real. <laughs> it may be a, an erroneous claim. <laughs> you know, look, the, the right to protect and control your copyrights trumps that of, or not trumps, that's the wrong term to use, but is, is maybe first in line of, of taking a, a defense um, of fair use or parody or whatever defense you want to make, you know, on that side of the claim, those are defenses. And, and it's your responsibility to stand up for and protect what you believe you were trying to accomplish and why your use of, of the piece of content may not be, you know, copyright infringement. But yes, it is true that, you know, for someone, if, if you wanted to go through the claim dispute process, uh, the onus, once you get to counter notification, does fall on the content owner to actually go, you know, file a, a lawsuit against you to to keep that copyright claim enforced. Yeah, because there's been a few times recently, and I know that my current use of uh, licensed content means that I'm having a lot of claims and that even though I may technically be in the right in terms of, uh, you know, being on the right side of a claim, there's sometimes where it's like, I just don't want to go down this road because I don't, want, yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't want someone from X huge multinational media company calling me as a little minnow and, uh, stamping down upon me with great vengeance but uh i suppose that's me just being selfish but yeah it's it's an interesting kind of power dynamic i think and anyone that's worked in content id will will kind of know what i'm talking about yeah i mean it is for sure and especially when you get into licensed content specifically you know it does it does get gray or not gray but more complicated really quick right because you know one thing to consider when you're when you're actually licensing content or you know maybe you've written your favorite creator and said, Hey, do you mind if I put a clip of your content in my video or react to one of your videos or something like that? You know, that person who said, okay, may be part of the decision-making process, but oftentimes, especially when you're getting into, you know, a formal company where you're getting a, a license from, and especially if it's a terrestrial license where you've got, you know, you're restricted in certain territories, you can't have the content up in certain territories you know, the left hand doesn't always talk to the right. The person who is working inside the CMS is likely not the person that you talk to. And sorry to give some background there, the YouTube CMS uh, or content management system is the backend product that uh, all of us use who do rights management to actually help control and administer all of this stuff. You know, you may still have to go through the claim dispute process just to iron things out. But as long as you have a proper license, you should probably be okay. There certainly are use cases, though, where I've had, say, like a musician say, I want you to promote my song to somebody. And that's all well and good. But the actual label that owns the song or the publisher who has rights to the song, that may not be in their strategy for what it is. Or, you know, another example would be if you're licensing video content, oftentimes video content globally has different owners. 
And so you may have one owner who's totally okay with it being live in France, but another owner who's totally not okay with it being live in Turkey. And, you know, the way that the, the YouTube system works is it will always default to what is the most conservative policy. And policies are what we place on videos when we claim them that basically tells the video what to do on the front end. Policies are to monetize, to track, or to block the video. And, you know, that's the order of conservative uh, as well. So monetization is the most liberal and then eventually getting to the content being blocked. So, you know, even though you may have licensed it and, and you, you have the right to have it up, that company who you didn't do the license with in Turkey that doesn't want it up may want the video down and then it makes your video go down. And it gets, it obviously, as you can tell from my very long-winded explanation here, it gets complicated real quick. Yeah, as I'm finding out every day, as I seem yeah. to find, as, as I seem to walk into every single edge case that ever could exist and even YouTube don't know how to fix. But that's another story altogether. We'll save that for another day. I actually got a really quick question that I've never really thought to ask you, Ryan, but you've, you've just You've just brought it up, so I can't let it pass. Have you ever had a client that has asked you to track? I cannot understand why anyone would track user uploads and only track. Have you ever heard of a use case for that or had a client that's asked you to do it? No, actually, I haven't. You know, track is a pretty uncommon policy to use. I mean, there are some use cases that you would want to use it. For example, if you didn't actually have commercial rights, you just had the right to post, you'd want to use track there. But I've never had anybody come to me and say, hey, I want you to go do all this work, but I don't want to make any money on it. Pretty much everybody across the board uh, wants to actually make some money on this. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I've got one more kind of technical question, and I'm going to change tack slightly. So last kind of question here on, on this kind of half of the interview is some of our listeners will be people that are working on much bigger YouTube channels. Mm -hmm. So half a million, million subscribers, even if just a couple of hundred thousand, and they may have access to something called the copyright match tool, which is a relatively new tool from YouTube that's kind of randomly been rolled out to some bigger YouTube partner, people in the partner program. I think there is a link somewhere where you can apply for it. And I'll make sure that link is in the show notes. But can you kind of quickly sum up the difference between what that tool would give a user and what a CMS or, you know, a company like yours that has the ability to use a CMS on someone's behalf? What are the differences in powers and what's really lacking from that copyright match tool? Yeah, so that's a great question. So uh, the copyright match tool is kind of a, a content ID light technology that YouTube has allowed certain channels usually that are at a, a particular scale or have a particular need or use case. Um, so they can automate finding videos that that match their content. You can only deliver full reference files. So if there's a problem with the reference file, it may just get shut off on the back end and it will pod videos into your video manager that you can actually review, take a look at. And if you find that it matches and you don't like it, then you can remove the content. The difference between the full suite of tools that a company like SuperBAM has is, you know, we deliver the reference files. We're capable of removing pieces of reference files if pieces of reference files shouldn't be there. 
we have some level of automated matching that's going on. So we don't have to review everything. We can, as we were talking about, apply all of the policies that are available. So, you know, DMCA takedown is, is the most conservative policy, even beyond a block policy. But we can monetize, track, block, or takedown content. You know, when you request a takedown using copyright match, it, it actually gets potted into a queue for review before the removal will occur. Whereas a lot of the claiming that we're doing happens immediately. And furthermore, and, and really what's most important is, you know, we have uh, the ability to do what's called uh, manual claiming, where we can actually search YouTube and find other copies that the content ID won't find. And when there is a clear infringement on it, place a claim uh, against that video. So copyright match is, is definitely really cool and can help, um, but it's not going to be as robust or holistic as working with a company like Superbam would be. And it's not going to make you that sweet, sweet content ID revenue. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to move on now because I'd say our audience is probably split somewhere in the middle between kind of pro level uh, creators, you know, so those people that may qualify for, you know, they might their channel might be big enough to qualify for something like the match tool. But the other half of the audience are probably people more like me, people that are working on other people's channels as, you know, clients, channel managers support staff, and there may be even some kind of content ID specialists or people that are manual claiming all day because, you know, that, that is a job, that is a career. And um, I would love to know, and really this is selfish for me as well, as, as someone who's kind of overseen content ID teams but has never really been on the front lines, um, I'd love to know. I, I've put top five, but I know I've put you on the spot here, so... Give us some top tips for running a clean CMS, how to get the most the most claims back, the least disputes, the least uh, errors in your queue or whatever it may be, like conflicts. Uh, and how do you maximize those those revenues? How, what are your top tips for, for running a, an awesome kind of content ID in CMS business? Yeah, well, I mean, look, re- really running a, a well-run holistic content ID business is an investment. It's not something that is easily done. It needs constant monitoring. We have a whole staff dedicated just to clearing reference files and, and getting them in the system and making sure they're clean. So that's, you know, number one, in my opinion, you know, you're responsible for YouTube, to YouTube for whatever you give to it, right? And um, when you're delivering reference files, in particular, you're authoritatively stating, hey, I own this. And not only do I own this, but anytime you see it, I want to know YouTube that you've seen this. So there's a lot of responsibility there. And it's very easy, especially when you're running a creator business to potentially put in something that may not be owned, be owned by them. You know, we've got creators who go, who will go and speak at events. Maybe they'll do like a video game launch for a company or something like that. And they'll be on a stage doing a video where the trailer is playing in the background. Well, Unfortunately, that part where the trailer is playing in the background can't be delivered to Content ID because then it's going to go claim every single trailer across all of YouTube. I mean, I'm sure that your listeners have seen plenty of experiences uh, of that on TubeFilter and various other publications where somebody put in a bad reference file and it did a bunch of crazy claiming across the entire platform. So, you know, I mean, that's that's number one. Number two is to know what all of your clients actually want you to do. 
you know, we've seen a lot of stories pop up where a bunch of bad claiming has been done by a company or maybe not bad claiming, but mistaken claiming by a company on behalf of a creator that was in their network. And the claiming that was occurring wasn't really in line with what the creator actually wanted. So, you know, it's, it's, it's important to know what you should and shouldn't be claiming. Third, you know, you do have to have some knowledge of what fair use is and, and all the laws that exist because, you know, it's, those laws exist for a really good reason. I mean, they, they exist because there are people who do need to use content or are using content appropriately and should be allowed to use that without actually needing to pay for it. And it's important to understand what those use cases look like and avoid claiming those use cases. You know, you, you need to have people that are, are trained in how to search on YouTube. And it's both searching on the front end of YouTube and, and in the back end and using other searching tactics that are available on the internet to be able to find more content. And then just getting smart about what you're actually looking for and how you're looking for it and, you know, the various tactics you're using to, to follow people that are known infringers and stuff like that. So, you know, I mean, running a real claiming business is, is it's a big undertaking for sure. And I think there's a lot more work that goes into it than most people are aware of. Additionally, then there's also follow-up work that will come out of that, right? Somebody, other companies may deliver reference files that actually overlap with your reference files and YouTube will tell you this, then you have to go resolve those things. Or when you deliver a new batch of reference files, you may find that somebody somewhere around the globe has been uh, mistakenly claiming your content for some period of time. And then you have to go get that cleaned up and maybe have a conversation with those people. So it's a pretty big job, which is, which is why we've actually built a company around doing it because of how much heavy lifting there is in, in getting it done properly. Yeah, I can only imagine the kind of scale at which you're working and have you had to bring in kind of bespoke software or processes to help you to become more efficient because i'm sure there's a lot of repetitive tasks you know for example are using a lot of canned responses because you know i'm having to use canned responses all the time for even you know disputing claims so i'm typing out the same things over and over again you know i'm sure you're getting the same oh, but I bought this song on iTunes kind of defense, or I put no copyright infringement intended in my description. <laughs> so, the, 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 yeah, which is, of course, stands up in court. We all know that. Yes. Um, but yeah, so are you, you know, are you implementing these kind of like canned responses or software or any any kind of thing to help you not necessarily find more stuff, but to be more efficient in, in what you're already finding and how you're dealing with it? Yeah. So look for us, you know, we have some internal tools, but it's also just a lot of training. It's a lot of training and getting people used to what the workflow looks like to actually do this and, and, and do it well. So it's teaching search tactics. It is learning kind of how to organize your day uh, around the clients that you're working on. You know, on the technology front, I mean, we are using content ID and, and, and content ID through video match, like informs quite a bit of what we do get a lot of good data from that. And we usually get the vast majority of our claims from content ID itself, although we find the more successful claims usually to be the manual claiming side. So it's sort of a combination of, of those things, you know, and then also, I mean, our clients will send us stuff too. And we're completely happy to have our clients send us a video and say, hey, have you guys claimed this? And if you haven't, can you? 
you know, I'd say 90% of the time when they send us a claim, we've already claimed it usually months ago. But every once in a while, they'll find something really unique that either content ID missed or, you know, it might be in a foreign language. And, and so we just didn't find it um, in that, uh, you know, that's always super helpful and appreciated when they do that. Yeah, I can imagine all of those kind of uh, Cyrillic languages and non-Roman alphabet yeah. languages are really tough to, to, to find. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure the, the video match is really helping you there. That's been so insightful. But before I let you go uh, and before I, people can find out more about you, I have uh, something that I like to call the Fast Five, which is five quickfire questions that everyone gets the same question. Uh, and I'd be really interested to hear yours, actually, Ryan, because yours is obviously coming more from an operational point of view and a content ID point of view. So really uh, looking forward to your answers on this. So are you ready for the Pro Channel Manager Fast Five? Let's do it. If you could only ever watch one YouTube channel ever again, what would it be? Casm 2. I have no idea what that is, but <laughs> I'm sure it's fantastic. What was it again? Casm 2. Uh, so I don't know if you're familiar with Casm G. Um, he's sort oh, of yeah, yeah, yeah. OG Jeez. YouTuber. Yeah. Uh, yes, way second, back in the day. Way back. <laughs> he had a second channel where he did a show called Ask Casm um, that was very over the top. And I really, really enjoyed it back in the day. It's been out of production for a long time. Yeah. It, you know, always keep hoping and dreaming and wishing uh, that it would come back. Yeah, that is a name that I've not heard for many years. So that's a really cool one to hear. This one, I'm really interested uh, to hear from you, Ryan. What one feature of YouTube from the past would you like to bring back? One that's been sunsetted. Oh, wow. Hmm. Wow, you're going to really make me think about what features have been definitely. Yeah, especially if it's like a content ID feature, that might be pretty cool. Yeah, okay. I got you. So this is not a feature that a lot of your listeners may know about, but way back in the day, there inside the YouTube CMS, there used to be this thing called bulk updater, and it would allow you to make a large group of updates across a whole swath of videos or channels or assets. And it was just super convenient. It was very simple and well put together. And YouTube has you know, tried to make similar things in their new product, but I don't, I don't think anything that they've created has been nearly as simple to use or as good. And I, I desperately wish that we could get something like bulk updater uh, to come back um, uh, to the platform. It would make my life a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. I think I remember using something like that back in the good old days, back in 2012, maybe. Yeah, I think it was deprecated in like 2015, so. Yeah, would make sense, yeah. All right, well, this is another interesting one. If you could add one feature to YouTube, what would it be? Hmm. On the content ID side, I would really, really like to see discovery down to a shorter time code. You know, content ID has what's called a match time restriction, and so, under 30 seconds, Content ID won't even inform you uh, that your content is appearing in another video. I understand why they have the rule that they do. It makes sense. But I would very much like to see discovery at a lower time code. So, you know, hey, just show me the piece of content and then let me make a decision about it on my own, about whether it's actually a copyright infringement, if I should claim it. You know, those kinds of questions. I, I would really love to see them drop that down. 
That's a great one. Next one is what one piece of advice would you give to a, a channel manager starting today? But I'm going to switch that slightly and say to, you know, what one piece of advice would you give to someone starting out in content ID today? So maybe like what is the most important bit of advice you give to your your new claimers joining your team? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Let's say know that not everything is a straight line when it comes to claiming and discovery, you know, you're going to end up down a lot of rabbit holes and some of those rabbit holes are worthwhile and some of them are a waste of time, but, you know, keep your mind open to learning as much about the content as you possibly can and chasing what you find because you never know what you're going to find. And sometimes when you find something, you know, there, there can either be a treasure trove, gold mine, whatever you want to call it down that pathway. So you know, just be very open to to using all the tools that you have at your disposal and and um, and learning more about them. Cool. And finally, my favorite question: If YouTube was a person, what would you say to them if you met them at a Christmas party? <laughs> you want to get a drink? Uh, <laughs> if YouTube was a person, what would I say to them at a Christmas party? Man, I've never even thought about that. <laughs> I don't even know how to answer this question. Good job this year. Let's try to do better next year. <laughs> I don't want to get myself in trouble with YouTube. <laughs> All right, we'll we'll keep that one. You know, what happens at the YouTube Christmas party stays at the YouTube Christmas party. <laughs> no worries. Ryan, thank you so much. This has been such an insightful episode. And I think you would have opened a lot of creators' eyes to a whole new world that they probably didn't know existed. And more importantly, a whole new revenue stream they didn't know that existed. So if people want to find out more about Superbam and maybe talk to one of your team about getting their content protected and hopefully monetized by Superbam, what's the best uh, step for them to take? Yeah, just head to our website, uh, superbam.com. And there's a, uh, a link at the top. Um, if you're interested in learning more about what partnership with us might look like, shoot us an email there and, and somebody will get back to you. So Ryan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to speaking to us today. And I'm hoping that a whole new generation of YouTubers are going to be content ID trained, alert, and hopefully making loads of money. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I think you can agree whatever side of the fence you're sitting on, whether you're a pro creator or if you are someone who's a pro channel manager running content ID, running a channel, just incredible insights. Honestly, I'm lucky enough to work quite closely with Ryan on a couple of projects. And he is just so smart, so generous with his information. I'm lucky enough to be able to just email him with a question and he'll almost certainly give me a great answer. If you want to work closely with Superband, remember you can find the link in the show notes. Also, all of this information summed up into a really actionable how-to guide at prochannelmanager.com forward slash episode 10. It's the word episode, the number 10, no spaces, no hyphens. And also, Ryan is a member of the Pro Channel Manager community. So he's in our VIP Facebook group, and he is there if you have any small questions he can answer. Before we go, we must say a huge thank you again to our sponsor, vidIQ. Remember, you can get a 30-day free trial of one of their awesome paid plans by visiting prochannelmanager.com forward slash vidIQ. Huge thank you to vidIQ. 
If you found this useful, please remember to subscribe in the podcast app of your choice and leave us a rating, a review wherever you're listening to this because it will help other pro channel managers discover the podcast. Always a pleasure to speak to you guys and I'll be back with a solo episode in two weeks. Until then, happy uploading. Laters. Thanks for listening to the Pro Channel Manager Podcast. Happy uploading. And remember, next time you go to publish a video, ask yourself, what would Tom think?